You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. If I didn't get to meet you on the front end, my name's Josh. On behalf of the staff and leadership, big warm welcome to first-time guest visitors. I um, want to open us up with a show of hands here. Uh, how many of you, the most frustrating relationship in your life is one within your own family or maybe with a sibling? A significant amount of hands. How many of you can't put your hand up because you're sitting with your family? Give me a <laughs> wink, okay? Just a little wink or a nudge, something. I read a few studies this week um, that showed, really illustrated this fact, the number one place division, quarrels, fighting usually takes place is within our own family. Um, This study I read showed, on average, siblings fight three and a half times per hour, which I mean, if you're a parent, we knew this already, you you could have saved the research grant, right? But... Uh, But it's not just kids. It happens between parents and kids. It happens between parents. Um, This study said that families have 2,184 fights a year, which works out to 49 minutes of fighting a day. A a poll, another one I saw, 2,000 individuals. They said um, 51% of the people um, surveyed said that the there's still ongoing fights between their siblings and them, between you know, everything from who's succeeding at their career goals to who's their parents' favorite, who has a nicer car, whose kids are more well-behaved. Fights are taking place in our families. Did these sound accurate to anyone else? Yeah, a lot of quarreling between families. These last few weeks, what we've been doing is we've looked um, at, at the book of Genesis and we've seen First off, this idea of how faith is passed from one generation to the next. Last week, we took a look at how one generation can be doing certain types of work, endeavoring to do certain things that would leave a legacy and a a foundation for the generations that come after them. This morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to take a look at generational fighting, what causes divisions in families that in many cases, have spread down from one generation to the next. We're going to be in Genesis 27, so if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bible up. You need a Bible here at Praxis, so you could Google Genesis 27. We have some blue Bibles on the barrel for you in the back. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. Take it home, Um, but you need one, and and you probably got one of our notebooks on the way in because we're a little Bible nerdy, and usually there's some stuff I think that's worth writing down that we discover as we work through the text. This morning, just because if we're honest, we're all engaging and and encountering these battles, there's probably some stuff I think that the text is going to speak to that would be worth writing down. So you might want to pull your notebook out, grab a pen. Uh, While you do all that, though, I'm going to open this in a word of prayer, and then we will start chipping our way through the text. Well, Father, I just thank you for this time we've been able to gather and reflect on the glorious work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, that you're a God who sees our need and cares enough to come down and actually take on human form and come and and die in our place. And we know that you're the God who's still pursuing us. You're the God who's revealed your will, spoken 
um, by your Holy Spirit in, and given us this word and that this word is for our sharpening and our edification and our upbuilding and sometimes correction and rebuking, but it's here that we might be shaped and, as your word says, complete and lacking in nothing. And so we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would come do the work through this word in us. This is a work I can't do, and so I ask for your empowerment. And on behalf of this body, we pray you would come minister through the Bible, the words um, that you've preserved for us, and we pray in the great name of Christ. Amen. One more show of hands, because we've been having fun. How many people like a play? Like four of you. Okay, um, <laughs> this is going to completely fall apart here. Uh, this is kind of laid out, our section of text today, like a play. There's a bunch of different scenes. At any given time, there's two people on the stage. Many people don't like plays. Let's think sitcoms, okay? Think Friends. Further back, maybe Cheers, or maybe you're an Office fan. Okay, there's one set, and different people come on and off of it. Each time somebody leaves and a new person comes on, a new scene begins. Uh, this, this is what we're looking at here. We're going to look at four or five different scenes going on in Genesis 27. And, and, and it all starts here in, in verse 1 as it always does. When Isaac was old, his eyes were dim so that he couldn't see. He called Esau, his older son, in and said to him, My son, and Esau answered him, Here I am. So the first scene here opens, and it's going to set the stage. It's going to set the tension for the rest of the story. It opens with Isaac on his deathbed, his eyes are failing him. He calls his son Esau in, who comes and stands in front of his bed. And, and Isaac says to him, Behold, I'm old. I don't know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, because he, he liked to pack his weapons around, I guess. Go out to the field, hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, and my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac here, big fan of the carnivore diet, likes to eat a lot of meat. And he says to his son, go kill me some, make me a delicious meal. This phrase, those two things, if you have your Bible open, you can underline them and then try to find the rest of them in the text. This, these two words show up six times, tasty meal. And it sort of speaks to this idea that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. If you've heard the old adage... He, he likes his meat a lot. I remember when Rebecca and I were dating. Um, our first Valentine's Day, I think, I really bombed it. Uh, but it's not about me right now. I want to praise my wife. She really nailed it. She snuck into my house and prepared a big feast for me. And I remember I showed back from work and there was like meat, delicious food, and I, it was done. I said, I want to bless this woman by marrying her. Um, <laughs> Because, I was like, if I could eat food like this every day, I mean, done deal. So, long story short, we, we married her. And, and women in the room, I mean, I'll give you a gold bar right now if you want to get your baskets out. This is for free. If, if you ever have bad news you want to bring to your husband or maybe a, a really um, special request, it always goes better when there's a steak beforehand. Meals make things better. But I don't think that's primarily what this text is getting at. That's kind of just, I'm, that was all for free here. Um, I think why we see this repetition coming up over and over is because it's communicating to us that Isaac thinks with his belly. We saw this earlier in chapter 25. If you remember, um, um, Isaac, his son Esau, also thought with his belly. He actually sold his birthright for some stew, which is a pretty decent meal, but it's not that good. 
sells his birthright for stew, and now we find out why, because he's just like his daddy. His daddy does the same thing. His dad thinks with his stomach. He gives in to his carnal cravings. He thinks through the lens of his physical appetites, his fleshly cravings, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago too. We're not just fleshly or physical beings though. We're spiritual beings. We don't live by bread alone. It's not the only thing we need to be thinking of. At the core, actually, of who we are is a spiritual being. So we need to think about some of the, the trade-offs that we make when we just purely indulge in our physical flesh. Esau here rejects his blessing because he's blinded by his carnal cravings. And now what we're going to, or yeah, earlier we saw that in chapter 10, now we're going to see is Isaac give away a blessing because he's deceived, he's blinded, he's kind of hoodwinked by his carnal desirings as well. And it's, it's easy to scoff at this family, like they're kind of dysfunctional. Look at what these guys do for a meal. But if, if we kind of allow ourselves to pull back, look at this a little metaphorically, we all have our stew. We all have things that, I mean, if it was placed in front of us, might tempt us to make some sort of horrendous trade as well. Might be stew, that's kind of weird, but it could be any number of things. It could be the promise of pleasure, promotion and more pay. It could be a promiscuous relationship, something that you could indulge in in the moment that would satisfy that craving of your flesh. And, and many of us, if we're honest, we've made these trades. We've, we've given away a great thing, obedience to the Lord, the blessing of the Lord for, for momentary physical satisfaction. That's what's going on here. And that's why I think this phrase comes up so much. And so he says, go get me some tasty meat that I like, and I'll bless you. Now, this idea of blessing needs a little bit of unpacking, too, because it, this doesn't really translate into our culture. We don't really do it this way anymore. Blessings were words that a parent would pronounce over their, their child as they were about to die. They would take time. They would script these out. These were well thought out, and they would gather the family together and, and then bless different members of their family. If you've ever had a family member die and you know the, the in executor of the state's about to read out the will, usually the family's gathered. This is kind of what's going on. There's a, a blessing about to be pronounced. It's like the last will and testament along with their future hopes all packaged together. There's, there's physical, there's spiritual blessings in them. We don't really do this anymore, but there's something kind of beautiful about it. And before, though, we close this curtain on this first scene, there's something important I think that we should notice is these two characters. They don't have the whole family together for this blessing. They've peeled off on the side. They're hidden away. This is kind of going on um, unbeknownst to everyone else. They're hatching a plan away from the rest of the family because they're doing something untoward. And actually, if you flip one page to the left in your Bible with me, go over to Genesis 25. We read this in the account of when Esau and, and Jacob were in their mother's womb. We read this. It says that the, the children were struggling within her, and she said, you know, if this is happening to me, what should I do? So she went to the Lord, inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her this, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you, the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Isaac here is hatching a plan 
but he's, he's countering what God has spoken previously. God had said the younger is who should be blessed, and here he's going about with his son, trying to conspire so that the order would be reversed. He's ignoring what God has revealed, and Esau similarly is doing the same thing. We've already mentioned Esau sold his birthright for some stew. He already sold it and gave it away. Now he's conspiring behind his mom and brother's back to try to steal it back. Isaac's playing favorites. Esau's just playing dirty. And scene one here, it sort of gives us a glimpse into the mind, the heart of of Isaac and Esau. But as we transition into the second scene, we're going to get a bit of a picture into Rebekah. And, and, and there's something to behold there, too. Take a look at verse 5. It said this. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke this to Esau. She, she's she's kind of hiding on the side, listening in. Moms never do this, right? She's listening in. She hears their plan rather than going to her husband and saying, hey, remember what the Lord said to us. Rather than going and reminding her husband about how Esau actually had sold his birthright, rather than going to the Lord, she calls in her son Jacob and she springs into action with a little plan. Listen to this. Esau went to the field to hunt some game and bring it. She said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Um, He said, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I might eat it and bless you before the Lord or before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats so that I might prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. You shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. We're witnessing here um, the start of a big division in this family different sets of motives, each parent playing favorites. Isaac teams up with his favorite child. Rebecca teams up with her favorite child. Each try to get their own way. Each try to manipulate the situation to get the outcome they want. Here's the thing. When families make teams, everyone loses. If you take a look at this whole chapter, what you're going to see is teams forming up. The, The family isn't together. They're not united. They're divided. So scene one, Isaac and Esau. Scene two, Rebekah and Jacob. Scene three, Isaac and Jacob. Scene four, Isaac and Esau. It's only at the very end, Rebekah comes back after all the damage is done. It's the first time we see her around her husband to complain about the outcome of it. Neither parent is together with both of the kids. Neither parent's together with the other parent. Jacob and Esau are never together. Because there's division between them. Why? Because there's division between their parents. The parents are divided. They're never together. They have teams because the parents have divided them. They've divided them according to their favorite children. Verse 1, we see this. Um, Isaac called Esau, my son. Verse 5, Rebecca calls Esau, Isaac's son. You ever, ever hear that? Um, Your child did this. (laughs) Verse 6, Jacob's referred to as her son. Rebecca calls her husband your father instead of my husband or Isaac. Isaac calls Jacob your brother instead of calling him his son. Rebecca calls Esau your brother instead of calling him her son. 
just brokenness all throughout this family. They're never together in one room. They don't come together to pray. They come together to conspire against each other. Rebecca's always with her favorite child. Isaac's always with his favorite child. In four of the scenes, all we see is the parent with their favorite child. And this is today still the cause of many family problems. Parents playing favorites. Nothing good can come from making teams within a family. Why? Because biblically, you're all one family. You're all one team. Genesis tells us this. It says, in fact, we, we talked about this in Genesis too. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The two become one team. They're one. Biblically, they're, they're supposed to be one. And what happens is instead that they, they're dividing. And I just say, parents, our kids need to see that we're one. They need to see this. They need to see us living out this biblical truth. They need to see us model this. We're one flesh. And so dads, we can't play good cop, bad cop with our kids against our wives. We're working against this. Likewise, moms, you can't make a team with your kids and go against your husband. Your kids need to see that first and foremost, you're united with your husband, wife. And husbands, you're united with your wife, not your children. I think a lot of the disorder that we see in society comes from kids actually having been elevated to positions they were never supposed to within the family unit. It's supposed to be God and then our marriages. And then kids fall under that. And there's, there's a stability when you know your boundaries, when you know where you fall. But that's, that's been dissolved in many, many instances. Our teaming up our division doesn't glorify God. It actually leads to the destruction of families. And it's interesting to note here, we see these two people scheming. We see Isaac and, and his son Esau scheming. And then Rebecca sets about scheming. Did she need to? No. God said, the older will serve the younger. Over and over throughout this book, we've been seeing God's word come true. For some reason, she doubts that, or she, and so she sets about, well, i got to make this happen. Or she thinks she's helping God accomplish what he, he said he's going to do. But she didn't need to, to connive. God fulfills his, his purposes, his plans. And as I thought about this this week, I mean, I don't think we're all too different from her. I mean, we're all seeking after things. And what this text reminded me is, you know, the way we go about it matters. Rebecca's seeking a good thing, but she's going about it in a way that's all wrong. And, and the, the problem gets really big in that Jacob is going along with a really terrible plan. Take a look. Um, let's drop in at verse 8. So she says, My son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats. I'll prepare them. Um, for delicious food for the, the, your father loves, and you'll bring it to him to eat, so he will bless you. She, or let's just actually keep going here. So Jacob says to his mom, Behold, my brother Esau is hairy, and I'm a very smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and I'll get a curse instead of a blessing. And his mom said to him, Oh, let the curse be on me. Just obey me and bring these things to me. She's being a power mom over her son. And what I think this text is showing us is Jacob's a bit of a mama's boy. 
we saw this earlier in chapter 5. Esau's that outdoorsman, daddy's boy. Jacob's a little bit more of the indoorsman, mama's boy. So when Rebecca says, obey my voice, go do this, to her grown son, he listens. He goes. We already said, Rebecca should have went to her husband. Rebecca should have went to God. She could have even went to Esau to figure this out instead of making a team. But Jacob shouldn't also be going along with this whole team mom idea. There's, there's a tendency for moms to overparent their kids today. I'm mothering, great for boys when they're babies. Mothering them when they turn into kind of the, their 20s, I think that there can start to be maybe some concerns. There's, there's a tendency for moms even to try to rule over their sons when they leave the home. Any other sons experience that other than me? A few, okay? I see a few honest hands. Rebecca here, she's over-mothering her son, I think, and seeking to control him. Maybe she, it's well-intentioned. Maybe she doesn't realize it. Who knows? But there is a time when a man needs to go out and stop having his mom mother him. We, actually, Genesis told us this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. There's a time when you leave your father and your mother. And, and men, we need to notice this. There's a time we need to leave our father and mother. For the women in the room, a show of hands, quick survey. How many of you, when you were looking for your significant other, or maybe you're looking for your significant other right now, you're looking for someone who still lives at home, and spends his weekends doing crafts with his mom. <laughs> Any hands? No, anyone like hanging out in the scrapbook aisle at Michael's trying to find that perfect guy buying Hodge su podge supplies? <laughs> Generally not, right? You're probably looking for somebody who has a job, can support himself, maybe mature enough, so mature that he can not only support himself, he might be able to support you. He, he's got his stuff together. He can fend for himself. Moms, I, I can imagine this is hard to let a child go. We're not at that stage yet. I know it's hard seeing my mom have to do this. I'll never have to do it because I have girls and they can live at home forever. But at some point, boys have to go out, right? If they can shave and they've graduated, it's, it's time to like go become a man. We're not doing favors, keeping them as ho at home until their 30s. Actually, traditionally, there was a practice. I, I've been... Um, I got nerdy into this topic about eight months ago, but men, traditionally about around the age of 11 or 12, would be passed from the mom over to the, the dad. There was kind of this rite of passage where now you are with your dad. Your dad is going to kind of take you through finishing school. All right, and when then the son falls and scrapes his knee, he doesn't get to run to mom anymore. Mom's gonna push him to dad. Mom's gonna say, no, this is where you go now. Because the dad's going to train you how to step into manhood. Some of that, I think, has been lost in our culture. We see Rebecca doing a bit of the opposite here, over-parenting him and even telling him what to do. Again, just look at verse 11. Jacob said to his mom, or, or she says, go and do what I tell you. A couple times it comes up. Obey my voice. And he's hesitant, but he's not hesitant on any sort of moral grounds. He's hesitant on body hair grounds. He goes, my brother's a hairier beast than I am, and I'm pretty smooth. I think dad's going to, to bust me. And so mom comes up with this plan of, of you know, putting some, some hairy clothes on him. And she's like, hey, let the curse be on me. 
just obey me. She'd rather be cursed for her deception than go talk to her husband. They're so divided. And then, well, let's read on. So he went, Jacob. He took them, brought them to his mother. His mother prepared delicious food that his father loved. Then Rebekah took the garments of Esau, her oldest son, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. Yeah, this is weird. Uh, and she put delicious food and bread, which she prepared, into the hand of her son Jacob. So Jacob, the mama's boy, does what his mama tells him. The curtain closes, and now it's going to open for, for scene three here. We read on. So now mom's gone. Jacob goes in to his dad. And he went into his father and said, my father. And, and he said, uh, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. Trying to do his best deep voice impersonation, I think. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Walks in. Um, this, this stage is set with Isaac's bedroom. He's old. He's nearing the end of life. His eyes are dim. And he's, he's wearing his brother's clothes over top of some weird animal skin gloves and sort of like a, a goat hair turtleneck to deceive his dad. It's quite ridiculous. He walks in and, and Isaac said to him, how is it you found the food so quickly? And he answers this, because the Lord your God granted me success. I don't know if you caught that. He just lied twice. So one, he lied about who he is, and then he almost borders in blasphemy here, saying, oh, God has blessed me. And he didn't bless you. You're acting in like a completely terrible way, borderline blasphemous. Well, then Isaac said to him, well, come near that I may feel you to know whether or not you're really my son Isaac or not. Uh, this is probably quite frightening. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt and said, felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Apparently feels like goatskin gloves. He's probably sweating bullets right now, right? This is like um, Harry Potter in the Invisibility Cloak by Voldemort. He's like, man, if this fails, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I'm losing all my blessings. It's over for me. And then Isaac asks him another question. Look at verse 24. He says, are you really my son Esau? You can cut the tension. Like, you imagine being there. I am. I am. Then he said, well... Bring the food near to me that I might eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him. He ate. He brought him wine and he drank. And then his father said, this is who says, come near and give me a kiss. It's a, 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 a kind of a, an ancient tradition, kissing each other on the cheek. So he came near and kissed him. Frightening. He's probably like his knees are knocking. But his dad falls for the ruse. He doesn't get discovered his dad buys the deception, and then Isaac proceeds to bless his son, Jacob, with the blessing that he had written for Esau. He says this, he smelled him and his garments and, and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, 
plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you. Nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, I, I said these, these blessings are very intentionally phrased. Um, he'd been planning to do this. It's, it's a very beautiful practice, I think. It'd be really neat to think about what it would look like for us to bring things like this back. He, he blesses him in, in four ways. First, he blesses him with fertility in his family. Second, fertility in the field. Third, a blessing within his family, and then a blessing within the nations. It's, it's reminiscent of the blessing that was given to Abraham that he passed down to Isaac. Now Isaac's packaging that up, and he's trying to give it away to who he thinks is Esau, but in fact, it's, it's Jacob wearing goatskin clothes. He's given him this blessing. Now, it's, it's really interesting. I, don't, I got so many questions about this, too. You probably do as well. Is there something mystical that happened that made these blessings come to pass? I don't know. Was, did, did these blessings sort of like move the hand of God and, and cause this to come to pass and the blessing actually come up? I don't know. I don't know. Was it that the words of the Father were just so impactful spoken over the Son that he kind of went and lived it out? I don't know. But what is clear is that these words had some form of power. And words do. They have power. Jacob ends up living what his father had pronounced over him. He, he spends 14 years, actually, we're going to see in coming chapters, in the field. He's really going to smell like the field. But there's something else we need to notice here. Um, the son who was promised to be blessed in the end was. And the thing is, is it, it happened in a way that was improper. Did what God say was going to happen, happen? Yes. But it happened in, in a way that God that it were really, it should have never happened. They didn't need to engage in this whole deceptive act and team building. God had promised it. Rebecca and Jacob's actions lacks faith. They're walking by, by sight, not by faith. They're not trusting the plan of God. They could have ran to God in prayer. They could have went to their father and presented their case. He, Rebecca could have reminded her husband of the promise of God, but instead they have this big deception. And as they do this, they lose all sorts of stuff. I found this quote this week from an old commentary, a guy by the name of Marcus Dodds. He said this, they gained nothing. It was going to be theirs anyway. They didn't actually get anything that they wouldn't have already got. They gained nothing. They lost a great deal by their wicked interference. They gained nothing. God had promised that the birthright would be Jacob's. He would have given it to him in some way. Instead, all they did was lose. They gained the blessing in an unblessed way, and they lost a couple things. One, family credibility. Think Isaac's trusting his wife anymore? Do you think Jacob and Esau are going to trust each other anymore? Any which way you look at it, there's a broken down trust system within this family now. To the point where they didn't just lose credibility, they actually lose their family. And when families team up and fight, this, this is what happens. When families make teams, there's never any winners. And, and this is going to lead us into this next scene. So, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, comes in from hunting. 
He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father and said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He said, I'm I'm your son, your firstborn son Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently. He's, he's, He's panicking. What have I done? Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate all of it before you came and I blessed him? As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. and said, well, bless me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully. He's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? He's cheated me two times. He's taken away my birthright. Now he's taken away my blessing. So this name Jacob, we, we talked about this before. It means heel grabber means deceiver. He says, he is a heel-grabbing deceiver. He's trying to overtake me. He's taken my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. But this isn't actually all entirely true. Um, He only tricked him once. So he tricked him and took his blessing. But this birthright, he already sold. He sold that. And I think we're a little bit like Esau here sometimes, too, where we blame everyone for what's going on to us. It's this person's fault, this person's fault. We're a big culture of victims. Everyone's a victim today. However, sometimes I think we're the victims of our own victimization. Esau sold his birthright. He's trying to blame his brother for it, but it's not really his brother. We get good at spotting the errors that others have done to us, but sometimes we can overlook our own. He comes to his dad and he says... um, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I made him lord over you. All his brothers I've given to him for servants. With grain and wine I sustained him. What then can I do for you? Esau said to his father, Have have you but one blessing, father? Bless me, even me also. And, And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. He's, he's tearful because he realizes what he's lost. Uh, Hebrews 12, it says this. If you look at the bottom half of this verse, we've looked at it before. It said that when, after selling his birthright, Esau came and desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the man's man now crying because he realizes that he's given away the promised land, and, and the promise that he thinks he, he, he deserves. And so he begs his father with tears going, is there anything you've held back you can give me? But his father says this, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. This appears to be some sort of blessing, anti-blessing of sorts that he was going to pronounce on his other son. Now he realized, hey, I went against God. The one who was supposed to be blessed, I was trying not to bless. Instead, I gave the blessing to the right one, but now this curse that I've reserved goes to the other. It's a mess. Yeah, a big old mess here. So it says now, Esau hated Jacob. The curtain closes. The scene ends. The curtain opens back up. We find Esau 
center stage, spotlight on him, and, and we're going to be told about his emotional state. It, it says, he hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him, and he said to himself, I'm going to kill my brother. We've seen this before. If you were with us earlier in Genesis, we, we saw Cain and Abel, very similar situation. One is favored, so the other one decides he's going to kill him. He, he's falling into the error of, of Cain. He's going to kill his brother. But verse 41, um, or pardon me, verse 42, it says that the words, these words he said, they're, they're, they're told to Rebecca. Rebecca here, she's, she's listening in again. She hears this. And she, she hears the plan, and she falls back into her pattern of overparenting her son. We're going to see Jacob fall into the tendency of becoming an obedient, an obedient mama's boy again. Take a look at verse 42. So she goes to her son. She sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and says, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself, planning to kill you. Therefore, obey my voice. Flee to Laban, my brother. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. This will all blow over, she says. Then I will send and I'll bring you back from there. Why should I lose both my sons? She hears the plan. She springs into action. Once again, she doesn't approach her husband to Esau. Um, she actually refers to him as Isaac's father, Esau. She doesn't go to her husband. You know, she doesn't go to... Um, her, her son, she doesn't go to God. She springs into action, sends Jacob away to stay with her brother Laban for a while. A while. She presumes it'll be a short time. What we're going to see is it's, it's not a short time at all. We'll see that in the coming weeks. We're going to go on a big misadventure with Jacob. But the hard poetic ending of this story is that while they got what they wanted, they also lost a lot. Jacob would go to Laban and he would never come back. The son that she'd favored and loved so much, she would never see again after this moment. Jacob is going to lose all the possessions of his father because he flees with just the shirt on his back. They thought they were gaining everything. In fact, they lost some really great things. And, and they gained a really unfortunate thing, which is generational family discord. We're going to trace this through the book of Genesis. A big family division comes from this. This one afternoon's event causes a ripple, big chain reaction that divides this family, and some things come back to bite them. Jacob, this crafty, deceitful mama's boy, is going to be tricked just as he tricked his father. He'll be tricked by Laban. He'll be tricked into marrying Leah before he gets Rachel. Jacob, as well, just like his dad, he's going to play favorites. He's going to have a favorite son. If you've read to the end of the story, he has a favorite son named Joseph. He gives special things to fancy, colorful coats. And it also perturbs Joseph's brothers, who also plot to kill him. Why? Because it all starts right back here. Causes a big chain reaction. He's also going to be deceived by a coat. If you remember, Joseph's brothers try to kill him, he ends up in slavery, then they take his coat, dip it in animal's blood, and come back and tell Jacob that his favorite son is dead. He, he gets his just desserts. This family, man, is 
a jacked up mess. We read this, there's no hero here. There's no protagonist to cheer for. There's a, a bunch of broken people. Isaac, the guy who ignores the command of God that said the blessing was Jacob's, plays favorites and give, tries to give it to his favorite son through deceit. Esau, his favorite son, he's already sold his birthright, but he's willing to double back on his deal and steal back what he rightfully gave away. Rebecca, doubting the big doubter of the promise of God, tries to get it for Jacob, her favorite son, through deceit, dividing with her husband and playing her kids against each other. Jacob receives what was promised to him by God through compromising ethics, thinking that somehow the ends justify the messy means by which he obtains them. And as we read this, you kind of get to the end and you go, what am I supposed to do with this? What do we do with all this? If you have um, one of our, our sermon series books, in each chapter we have these two questions. Um, I hope so. Someone tell me if I'm wrong. But these two questions. What does this tell me about me? And what does this tell me about God? And, and this text, the text is always teaching us things about self, ourselves, and it's always teaching us things about God. And so as we look at this messed up story and ask, what should I do with this? Here's what I think we start with. We consider our own ways. We consider our own families and our actions within them. Are we like Isaac, playing favorites, ignoring the commands of God in order to get what we want? Are we like Esau, led by our appetites, our carnality, we don't think about what's right or what God wants. We think just purely about, hey, what satisfies me? What gives me enjoyment in this moment? This will have effects that will ripple down your family. Are we like Rebecca, playing our kids against our spouse, trying to control situations and get what we want? And that will ripple down your family line. Are we like Jacob, so willing to do whatever, enter, engage in compromising ethics as long as we get what we want, maybe or even following the advice of other people instead of thinking for ourselves. He didn't worry about whether the plan was right or wrong. He just worried about whether or not his dad would recognize him. And then afterwards, he agonized over the consequences of the plan Forgetting, I mean, that he, he's the one who caused this all to break down in this way. Are we, like him, more concerned with the ends than the means? This text, I think, shows us some really important things. Where there is favoritism in a family, there is division. Where there's favoritism, there's division, and we're supposed to be one. Where there's division, though, it's usually as a result of unforgiveness. This person's upset with this person. They can't reconcile, so we form teams. We don't know what's divided them all in the past, but we can see the effects of it. Favoritism leads to division. The division leads to unforgiveness, and it's through unforgiveness that Satan can actually get a foothold in family genealogies. We're told families are supposed to be one. Here we see Satan breaking them down. We need to see. He wants to undo everything good that God has made. God designed the family unit to be one. 
Here he's coming and he's dividing it. The foothold he's going to use that's going to ripple down for the whole rest of the book of Genesis is these offenses, these situations, these situations where unforgiveness is continuing. And we know this. Proverbs tells us that an offended brother is more unyielding than a strong city. Sometimes we're so offended, we're just we're willing to die on that hill. This is the issue. We'll divide. We'll, we'll, we'll and you know, it, it will come what may, I'm not yielding. Sometimes a brother is like that. These divisions, they don't just go away in time. Like Rebecca said, oh, he'll, he'll forget it. You'll come back from Laban's. No, we're going to see. This actually ripples down a long time. So we need to do what Ephesians says. And in our anger, not let the sun go down. We need to pursue this. Why? To give no opportunity for the devil. Because the devil wants to divide families. And the way we bring unity back into families is, is forgiving. Jesus spoke to this, Matthew 6. He said, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive them their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. That's Jesus speaking. Those are heavy words. If we're disciples of Christ, we, we should strive to be like him. And he forgave not just those who sinned against him, but, but those who murdered him. So as a challenge to all us here in the room, if you're here and you're harboring unforgiveness or perhaps even hatred towards someone in your family, whether that's a parent, a cousin, a sibling, your grandparents, I don't know. I don't know who it might be. You are not making things better for you or for themselves, for them, by harboring unforgiveness. You actually might just be giving the enemy a foothold and you might be causing a, a massive divide and division that will ripple down through your generations. This story is gonna go on to show us the catastrophic effects and I, the way of Christ needs to compel us. If we're disciples of Christ, we need to act like the one we're following. A disciple is like his master. And Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinning against him, Christ died for us. And so here, maybe we're here and we've got a, 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 a sibling, a family member, somebody who's got some hate on for us. Our forgiving them, our bringing the family back together, it might not come by way of their apology. It might come by a way that looks a lot more like how Christ bought reconciliation, which was him dying. Us bringing reconciliation back together with our family might involve us putting some things down. It might not look like us being glorified. It might feel a lot more like death. Now, there could be someone in your family you know, that's done something against you, um, but maybe you have done something, and, and there's something that you need to go and apologize for. I, this story is illustrating to us generational divides. We need to do what we can if we're Christ's to be ending not just division now, but thinking generationally and the effects this will have on our kids and those after us. I think the story's talking about that. It, it, calls us to consider our own ways, but 
more than that, I think it calls, it calls us to marvel at God's ways. This, this story, it clearly presents as a jacked up, broken family. We also know that, you know, the promise of God gets transmitted through this family, which I think should make us do two things. One is, is remind us that we're not too different than them. We're, we're jacked up, broken sinners as well. All of Genesis is showing us God chooses very unlikely candidates to build his people through. Uh, this story is illustrating that back to us as well. To he, God's way of choosing isn't according to our performance, but just purely his own pleasure. And that should give us hope. Because this promised blessing given to Abraham, passed to Isaac, now given to Jacob, it's not dependent on them. In fact, it finds its fulfillment in Christ. And, and, I'll, and I'll explain this. Galatians says this. It says these promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, but it doesn't say his offsprings, referring to many, meaning there wasn't blessing for Abe and Isaac and Jacob and then all of them way down. It's ultimately finding its fulfillment in one, one offspring, Jesus. He's the one who inherits all of this. He's the one who, through these blessings, are ultimately bestowed and then are given out. He gives the dew of heaven and the fatness of earth, as it says. He's the one who the nations serve. He's the one the nations bow down to. He's the one who blesses all who bless him and curse all who curse him. We, we therefore, just pulling this all together, we don't receive blessing by putting on a disguise like Isaac. Probably not Isaac, Jacob. These names have been getting all spun around in my head. We don't, we don't receive a blessing through putting on any sort of garment. Jesus actually comes and he receives the blessing without having to put any disguise on. He's the only one who didn't have to disguise himself to get it. He comes and then he also gives us a new righteousness, if you will. He gives us a new set of garments to put on. And so, just to close and bring this to kind of ahead, the band's going to come up here. I, wanna, I want us to, one, just see one thing here, that we, like this family, are wretched sinners, and our only hope is that one would come who actually could carry this blessing and give it. His name's Christ. And if we're in Christ and we've been forgiven, we need to see that God has something he wants to do in our family units. Just as Satan has something he wants to do in our family units, God has something he wants to do in our family units. And as we move into a time of response, I want to call us to just consider our own family units. First, you're, you, you, the one that's under the one roof. If you have a wife, if you have kids, consider this and go, what does it look like for us to be one biblically? How do we fight off division? Where might it be coming in? See the effects. But then within your wider kind of larger family unit, look and ask yourself this. I've been asking myself this all week. How can I, as we talked about last week, be the restorer of the breach? Rather than the causer of the breach, the cause of division, how can I, like Christ, come and bring unity back into my family? And we're going to transition into communion now, which is this celebration of just this. Jesus came to this family, the one whom the promise had been given, through which division had happened, he came and united them again through, through death. And so the, the, the way we respond out of this is by reflecting back on what Jesus did to invite us into his family.
We're going to have a couple up on either side serving communion. And as you come and you take the bread and you dip it in the wine, this is what we're remembering. Jesus died to reconcile us. Come and celebrate, but then think, what should I do to bring reconciliation to my family?